Okay, ethics in room 21C. Room 21C, of course, being the room of the 21st century within which we live. And when we talk about ethics, we're talking about how we should live in this time. Uh, Today we're looking at the seventh word, uh, the seventh commandment, seventh word in Hebrew. And it is a simple word, but it addresses the area of sexuality, which touches all of us, and for many of us, it's delicate. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us in all things, in all phases of life, every circumstance. Jesus, you said that if we would abide in your word, we'd know the truth, and the truth would set us free. And so we ask you by your spirit to guide us into truth today. May we understand your word to us and know how to put it into practice. We ask you for that grace in your name, Jesus. Amen. So the seventh word, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. That's a simple two-word command in Hebrew. It was given 3,500 years ago. So why do human beings throughout history, why have they had a hard time just obeying that simple word. Listen to this uh, poem entitled Nothing But Sin and Bones. The lips of a seductive woman, woman are also oh sweet. Her soft words are also oh smooth. But it won't be long before she's gravel in your mouth, a pain in your gut, a wound in your heart. So my friend, listen closely. Don't treat my words casually. Keep your distance from such a woman. Absolutely stay out of her neighborhood. You don't want to end your life full of regrets, nothing but sin and bones, saying, oh, why didn't I do what they told me? Why did I reject a disciplined life? Why didn't I listen to my mentors or take my teachers seriously? My life is ruined. Enjoy the wife you married as a young man, lovely as an angel, beautiful as a rose. Don't ever quit taking delight in her body. Never take her love for granted. Mark well that God doesn't miss a move you make. He's aware of every step you take. The shadow of your sin will overtake you. You'll find yourself stumbling all over yourself in the dark. Death is the reward of an undisciplined life. Your foolish decisions trap you in a dead end. Do you recognize that poem? That ancient poem was penned by King Solomon 3,000 years ago. It's in Proverbs chapter 5. So, Why have men and women struggled to follow this counsel throughout history? Millions of times, men and women have gone against the seventh word. So before we try to answer that question, let's just make sure we understand the seventh word. The the Hebrew word commit adultery, it's actually one word, and it's used in the Bible for both men and women who betray their marriage relationship. It's also used of people that betray their relationship with God, Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. So in the Bible, adultery is defined as sexual relationships with the spouse or fiancé of another person or the worship of another God other than the true God, Yahweh. First point for us, let's contemplate the meaning of the seventh word. Just stop and contemplate the meaning of the seventh word. Adultery is the betrayal of bonded relationships based on loyalty and trust. 
In Scripture, it's called the great sin. In the Old Testament, referred to as the great sin. And it's punishable by death. Now, for us in our world today, that sounds really strange. Let's just admit that it's hard for us to understand why it would be the great sin in our individualistic North American society where we're taught that the interests of the individual are what matters, where what matters is what serves me, what I think is good for me, what interests me. It's hard to embrace any kind of word that goes against anything that would restrict our own desires or passions. It's just hard to hear. How could that be good for us? And the statistics are sobering. In a global study that was done in 2004, this was global, the survey revealed that 63% of men and 45% of women had been unfaithful to their spouses. That's sobering. In Canada, 2016, the Global Mail did a survey. 11,000 Canadians responded. 40% of men, 33% of women had been unfaithful. So just hearing those statistics, it's obvious that infidelity is pervasive. Lucia O'Sullivan, she's a psychology professor at the University of New Brunswick, and this is what she writes. I quote her. Monogamy fights against Fights are natural instincts. We're drawn to people who are pretty in some way, who are appealing. Our brain lights up. Our pupils dilate. Everything. It does not happen because of some dark defect in our character. It's situational. It's opportunistic. And then she goes on to argue that monogamy, a monogamous marriage, it just does not come naturally to us. So in our Canadian society, when we hear the words of a professor saying that kind of thing, we kind of accept it because sexual activity in Canada, it's the domain of two consenting persons, with or without love, committed or uncommitted, heterosexual or otherwise. What really matters are our desires, our passions, our emotions. And adultery, well, maybe it's not the best path forward, but it's tolerable and even to be expected. So why would God call it the great sin? Why? When we address the subject of our our sexuality, I think a good place to start is just remembering what God's design is for us. Jesus, he was an unmarried man, celibate his whole life, and he talked about sex within a marriage relationship, a marriage between a man and a woman. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting from Genesis 1. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and the hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quotes from Genesis 2. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Whatever therefore God has joined together, let not man separate So in marriage, what's happening? God is knitting together a man and a woman in a beautiful, intricate way. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. So we should begin by celebrating God's design for marriage. It's to be a profound one flesh union. And those words, one flesh, it refers in a very concrete way to our physical bodies. Sexual relations are the, the, the glue, the cement of a bonded relationship. 
According to the Bible, sex is a gift from God. Sometimes we forget that. We think that sex is actually the domain of someone else. No, God invented sex. He created it. It's an integral part of the goodness of creation, something we are to celebrate. God invented sex, and the Spirit of God inspires poetry like this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And I have to stop reading because some of you now feel uncomfortable. Where is this going? That's in Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Sometimes we're more reserved, we're more prudish than God is. The Bible actually celebrates the sexual act of love as something good. It's for pleasure. It's for joy. It's for love. It's for procreation, yes, but also for relationship. And the seventh word, it just protects the sanctity, the beauty of sex within the marriage relationship. Another thing that we need to remember in our day, and this speaks to the wisdom of Scripture, the wisdom of what God says. When we engage in sexual union, it alters our neurochemistry. In the moment of sexual union, neurochemicals, hormones are being released that help us forget pain, that help us bond with the other person, that enable us to experience pleasure. That's the way that we're made. It happens on the subconscious level. There's a physiological bonding that unites a man and a woman, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And of course, that's why sex outside of marriage is so dangerous. There is no way that you can walk into a sexual union and then walk away from that as if nothing has happened. Because that's the way God designed sexual union. You bond with the other person. That's why pornography is so dangerous. When you're uh, watching pornography on the internet or whatever medium you might be using, those same neurochemicals, those same hormones are being released by your brain. And that's why it's so addictive. That's why people keep going back to it. Dr. Doug Weiss, clinical psychologist, has written this. The way God designed you is what Whatever you're beholding at the point of sexual release, you literally glue to, attach to, hunger for, and will crave again. So sex is this beautiful gift for a man and a woman to taste Eden together, to be exposed but without fear, to be naked but without shame. And adultery, it just betrays everything that God intended for a man and a woman. It betrays the sexual intimacy that God intended for a man and a woman. It betrays that bond. So, first point is that God intends a one-flesh union. Secondly, the marriage relationship is used more than any other relationship in Scripture to picture God's relationship with us. With us. God, He's steadfast in His love. He is always faithful. And He always will be. When God makes a covenant with a person or makes a covenant with his people, he never breaks it. In Malachi chapter 2, the people of Israel are wondering, okay, why doesn't God hear our prayers? Why? Why doesn't God accept our sacrifices at the temple? 
And this is how God responds to the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 2. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God, he calls for faithfulness. He pleads for faithfulness because that's what he values. That's who he is. God designed marriage to be a union that models his permanent faithfulness to us. And when the marriage relationship is broken, that image of God, God and his faithfulness, is distorted. God's all about loyalty. So marriage... It's not just rooted in physiology, it's rooted in God's character, his faithfulness. So think about it for a moment. Do you want a God who is disloyal to you? Do you want a God who is unfaithful to you? Do you want a spouse who is unfaithful to you, disloyal to you? Really interesting data point from that survey done by the Globe and Mail in 2016. 34% of those surveyed who had cheated on their spouse, they said that they wanted their spouse to be faithful to them. It's just a little hypocritical, right? But it's interesting that even those who are unfaithful, those who are disloyal, expect their spouses to be faithful to them. We all want faithfulness. Thirdly, the marriage relationship is to be the bearing wall of the home. What's a bearing wall? When Judy and I bought a home in Abbotsford, this was some time ago, another life, um, we decided to open up the, the door into the living room. And so we started to take apart the wall. And the previous owner, he drove by, he looked through the living room window, saw that we were messing with that wall, and he called me, Ray, do you know what you're doing? Why would he ask that question? I said, yeah, I do. Okay, I'm playing with a bearing wall. We've put in a laminated beam. The house will not fall. You see, the bearing wall, it sustains everything above it, and it passes the weight down to the foundation. The foundation of a marriage, of a family, is God himself. And the bearing wall, the husband-wife relationship, it sustains what is above it. The bearing wall is to stabilize, sustain the life of the family, of the children. Children that grow up under that solid bearing wall, well, they come to an understanding of what love truly looks like. They begin to understand sacrifice in relationship, perseverance, even when it's difficult. They begin to understand faithfulness and loyalty and goodness. They value security and peace. God designed marriage to be the bearing wall under which children learn faithful love. The bearing wall under which children learn faithful love. In more recent years, therapists and sociologists, they've been studying the impact of infidelity on children. And they've discovered that even when the children don't know what's happening, at least the affair has not been revealed, they sense that something is wrong. 
They observe their parents expending extra emotional energy outside of the home. They don't know why. They just know it's happening. They feel it. Their anxiety goes up. Their levels of frustration go up. They begin to think that they've done something wrong. Dr. Pittman, professor of psychiatry at Emory University, she says this, Children who sense their parents are struggling in their marriage tend to exhibit anxiety symptoms with clinging, bedwetting, thumb-sucking, fire-setting, temper tantrums, night terrors. In fact, anything that seems an appropriate response to the fear that their family is about to be wiped out. The rupture of the marriage relationship through unfaithfulness, it destabilizes children. And of course, it undermines their confidence in a God who says he is faithful. Then fourthly, and this is beautiful, the marriage relationship is to image the relationship between Jesus and his church. Paul calls this a mega mystery. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A mega mystery. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to point to that everlasting reality between Jesus and his church. So God has designed marriage to be a union that models Jesus' eternal union with us. If you're a follower of Jesus, then one of your great hopes is to meet Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you ever have the thought that Jesus is not going to show up? That he's going to be with another person, another people. You see, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're living toward that marriage supper of the Lamb, that marriage that will include all followers of Jesus, the married, the unmarried, the elderly, the young, the divorcees, the widows, the widowers, all who follow Jesus will be there for that marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus. Our marriages are to point to that. So when God says, you shall not commit adultery, it's not because he's against us (laughs) or he's against sex. It's because he's for us and he understands sex. He created it. In, In our society, at least since the sexual revolution of the of the 1960s and the promotion of free love, in profound ways, the image of God in humanity has been desecrated. Sex has been trivialized. Children have been marginalized. Families broken. People objectified. We think that we're finding life by following the path of free free love in North America, but it's actually going the way of death. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Pastor Willie talked a little bit about about this last week, that in Canadian society, increasingly, we're moving toward a culture of death. Death to the image of God in human beings. The elderly. The unborn. Death to marriage. Death to family. Death to goodness, to beauty, to faithfulness. So tragic 
when we see that we actually, in Canada, we do have the Word of God. The Word of God is accessible to us, but as a society, we have rejected it. We have said, we know better. We will go our own way. Sex, a gift from God. Marriage, a gift from God. Family, a gift from God. But as a society, we are throwing it away. We need to remember that God designed marriage to be a union that creates life. God desires that our marriage unions create life, and that's power. So if that's God's design for us, what's the best way forward? The best way forward for us as disciples of Jesus is not to lament what's happening outside of the church, but to celebrate God's design within the church family and live toward a healthy sexuality. We should not spend all of our energy just looking at the sexual perversion in our world and lamenting it. We should be the city on a hill that Jesus has called us to be. Madeline Lengel, American author, has written this. We draw people to Christ by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. So we're called to be that light. Scott Sauls, he's written a book, uh, Jesus Outside the Lines. He asks this, I quote him, What if we focused on redeeming sexuality inside the church first? Repenting of pornography, coarse joking, and other habits that objectify the image of God. What if we became intentional about reducing divorces where there are no biblical grounds? And nurturing love, lingering conversation, hand-holding, fidelity, forgiveness, and living face-to-face in intimacy and also side-by-side on mission inside marriages. For unless and until we become this kind of city on a hill among ourselves, any zeal for biblical values out there will fall on deaf ears, and rightly so. So if God is calling us in his mercy, in his grace, to celebrate his design for us and live toward it, then what are some of the signs of an adulterous relationship? There's always a process. It never just happens. For example, the number, uh, last week I was riding my motorcycle for a number of days, and uh, as I w- was riding, I would see signs. Signs like traffic pattern altered, uneven pavement, loose gravel, motorcycles exercise extreme caution. So if you're riding a street bike and you're cruising at about 100 kilometers an hour and you do not pay attention to those signs, you just race into the loose gravel, you probably will go down. Most likely. It's almost inevitable. You have to observe the signs. What are the danger signs of adultery? Well, it may be that the season of your marriage is difficult. Young children, you're exhausted. Work demands financial strain. You may be dissatisfied with yourself. Many of the people that commit adultery do it not because of their spouse. They just want to reinvent themselves. Maybe someone is paying special attention to you, even flirting with you, and so you start to look for those moments when you might meet that person. It may be in a chat room. It may be on social media. It may be in some social setting. You find the the adrenaline rush enticing. Around the world, people that have committed adultery, they say that they do it 
either emotionally or physically, because they feel alive. It makes them feel alive. And so you become emotionally engaged, and you feel justified in nurturing this relationship because life is difficult. You keep it to yourself, and affairs always feed on secrecy. As you go down this path, you may even begin to tell yourself, hmm, I wonder if God brought this person into my life. We'll tell ourselves all kinds of things when we start going down the path of adultery. I wonder if God brought this person into my life. You'll begin to believe the lie that it will be better for you if you just follow your heart. And Jesus says that's exactly where it begins. It's birthed in our hearts. Mark chapter 7, verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality. So the seventh word, you shall not commit adultery, it speaks to our inward hearts, inward thoughts. It speaks to our outward actions. It speaks to the desires of the heart and the deeds of the body. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes right to the heart of adultery. Mark, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So to lust after another person, to desire that person, to imagine the sexual possibilities, that already is adultery. And at this point, it probably touches all of us. It can happen in a nanosecond. Sometimes we think that these sins of the heart are not that serious because others don't see them. But according to Scripture, they're just just as deadly as the deeds of the body. The question is, what do we do with the thoughts? James chapter 1, verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, death. What are some things that we can do? What are some preventive measures that we can take? First of all, protect your eyes from the sexual messaging of our society. You will never protect your eyes from all of it because it's so pervasive, but do what you can. In North America, it it's, has been said that we will see 10,000 sexual messages every year. I can't even fathom how many that is. But we're all inundated by the messaging. My daughter, six years old, she came up to me one day and she said, Dad, how do I know if I'm bisexual? You're six. How do you know that word? (laughs) So I'm processing for a while. I'm thinking through it. Okay, not only what am I going to say, but why does she even know that word? Why would she even be having this thought? Well, all of us are inundated by the messaging. And somewhere she heard it. Somehow she participated in some conversation about it. And as parents and as grandparents, we have to be in conversation with our children and grandchildren about their sexuality. Because if we aren't, 
they will be educated by the educational system and by the media. They will be educated by someone. May it be us. Protect our eyes. If you're watching TV and you see ten sexual encounters, nine will be outside of marriage. So if you're watching TV, just remember that. We become immersed in our culture and we don't even notice what we're seeing, what we're hearing anymore. We're being inundated with a message of infidelity. We're not being encouraged to be faithful, (laughs) to be loyal. We just aren't. And we need to be aware of that. The internet is the most powerful purveyor of pornography in the history of the world. And it's so seductive because it is affordable, it's accessible, it's anonymous. So be careful where your eyes rest, whether it be on your computer screen, on the beach, on the billboard, put up boundaries. I think it's important for all of us in our day to be in a relationship with, uh, for me, for example, a man, to be in a relationship with another man who will keep me accountable, who will ask me the hard questions. We all need that. In a society where people are being bombarded with 10,000 sexual messages a year, we all need people that walk with us, that we can be transparent with, that will help us walk in purity. There's a, a, a group here at Willingdon called Pure Desire. And sometimes we look at that kind of a group for men and say, okay, well, that's just for those that are truly immersed in pornography, addicted to pornography, don't know what to do with them. No, it's for all men. We all need to walk, learn to walk with purity, to understand how we're wired. Another group for men is the group Home Improvement. Uh, This fall, we'll be offering freedom sessions for both men and women. There are a number of groups for women that have gone through difficult relationships or may be in a very difficult relationship. The group When Love Hurts, Betrayal and Beyond. All of that to say is that there are opportunities for us within the church family to learn to walk according to God's design. Let's care for the eyes of our hearts. Care for the eyes of your heart. What if you have committed adultery in your heart or in a relationship? One of the most tragic stories in all of Scripture is the story of David. David, who wrote Psalms, who was a worshiper. And one day, instead of going to war with the armies of Israel as king, it was what he should have done. He's at home. He's idle. He's on his rooftop. And he sees a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. And he desires her. And as king, he has the authority and the power to call her to his palace. And he does. They have sexual relations. That results in a pregnancy. That leads to lying. That leads to murder. And how does God deal with him? Well, God sends the the prophet Nathan to David. And David's sin is exposed. And when his sin is exposed, this is what he does. Psalm chapter 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We often sing 
those words. Do we remember that David, he penned those words after experiencing God's forgiveness for an adulterous relationship? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's pleading. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. God, in his infinite grace, forgave him. Restored him. That's who God is. Adultery is a great sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. John chapter 8, the religious leaders, they bring a woman to Jesus. She's been caught in adultery, and they want to stone her. Jesus, he bends down, and he's writing on the ground. I think all of us, when we get to heaven, we're going to ask him, Jesus, so what did you write on the ground? I'm curious. He doesn't respond to their questions. They persist with him. And so finally, he stands up and he says this, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And slowly, the religious leaders walk away one by one. And then Jesus is left alone with the woman. It's a beautiful moment. She's standing before him. And Jesus asks her, does no one condemn you? And she answers, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So God is always faithful. And when we repent, when we own our sin and turn from it, He comes with healing, with forgiveness, wanting to restore us, establish us, cleanse us. Confess your sins to the one who can restore you. Confess your sins to the one who can restore you. God offers forgiveness and healing to those who turn from their sin and turn to him. Listen to this sobering yet very hopeful word from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writes these words, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. Other sins are listed there too, but I abbreviated the passage for us. And such were some of you. Now there's a hopeful word. He says, you know, some of you were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So God, he cleanses us. That's his desire, to cleanse us, to restore us, to justify us, to sanctify us, make us holy by the Holy Spirit. We are not to be defined by the sins of our past. So often we live just bound to our history bound to our past, thinking that that is what determines our identity today and for the rest of our lives. That is not the gospel. Jesus said, if you abide in my word and know the truth, the truth will set you free. Jesus wants us to be free, not bound. So when we're condemning ourselves, 
it is us condemning ourselves quite often, or we're listening to the voices of those around us, God's message to us is repent, turn, and be restored, be set free. When it comes to our sexuality, all of us are broken at some level. Sometimes we ask the question, well, what about sex outside of marriage? What about premarital sex? What about uh, sexual violence, incest, rape? There are so many forms of illicit sexual activity. What about all of that? Well, in summary, all sexual activity outside of marriage, the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, it all violates the image of God. That's why God takes it so seriously. It all robs the sanctity, the beauty of a bonded marriage relationship. It all endangers the married, the unmarried, the old, the young, the children. It is all an act of spiritual desecration. God speaks against that, not because he's against us, not because he's against sex, but because he is for us and he understands sex. What are some steps that we can take to walk according to God's design? And I'll conclude with this. First of all, and this is not meant to be trite, but truly, the greatest healing is found in our relationship with God. Often what we're looking for in another person is actually what God desires to give us in our relationship with him. Life is found in him. So nurture a vibrant relationship with God. That's step one. Two, invest in your marriage if you're married. A good marriage doesn't just happen to you. Everything that is of value in life, it takes work. A good friendship, academic formation, professional life, marriage, it all takes work. Work at communication. Work at resolving conflicts. Do things that you enjoy together. Go on dates. If you're newly married, expect to say, I do, more than one time. So on your wedding day, if you're standing there, you know, I'm standing there with my wife-to-be. Um, she's beautiful. She's gorgeous like never before. So easy to say, I do. Oh, yes, I do. This is awesome. And then what is true for most spouses as time passes you know, sooner or later, we all ask the question, what was I thinking when I said yes to my spouse? Did I miss something? And we have the opportunity to say, I do again. And if we say, I do again, we open the window to having a deeper relationship with our spouse. Carter, one of our pastoral interns, he has a message that appears on his smartphone every day. Choose Sarah. So thankfully, Sarah is the name of his wife. <laughs> choose Sarah. So on my phone, it doesn't help if it's, you know, the message is choose Sarah. That doesn't help me. My message should be choose Judy. And I would ask, well, which Judy? No. <laughs> choose Judy. Just a practical thing that we can do to remind ourselves of what we should choose each day. Third, maintain healthy sexual relations with your spouse. Here, Scripture teaches mutual submission. 
1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. And then fourthly, um, be a part of a church family, participate in a church family that will help you walk in a healthy way, whether you are single or married, where you can have conversations about your sexuality, about your victories, yes, but also your struggles, your temptations. Be a part of that kind of church family. We desire to be that kind of church family at Willingdon. A number of years ago, a young woman was struggling in her marriage, newly married, and uh, as she talked to us about her struggles in marriage, she said, you know, all of my work colleagues and all of my friends are telling me this. You deserve better. Leave this marriage. There's something better for you. The only ones who encouraged her to stay in the marriage relationship were her friends from church and the pastors of the church she was attending. The only ones. It's so important for us to be a part of a church family that encourages us toward God's design. And thank, thankfully, that woman, young woman is still in her marriage, and it is much better than it was two years ago. If your marriage needs help, if you need help in your marriage, get help. <laughs> There's no shame in asking for help. If we're married and honest, <laughs> we will all admit that we have struggled in our marriage relationships. We all need help, all of us. There's no shame in asking for help. Uh, in the video announcements, Linda men mentioned Pastor Isaac. Uh, he's a wonderful man. Seek him out. At Willingdon, there are many marriage mentors. There are people willing to walk with us to help us. So cultivate an intimate relationship with God, your spouse, and your church family. Willingdon, let's be the city on the hill that Jesus intends us to be. Let's contemplate the meaning of the seventh word, a word that God gave us out of love for us. Let's celebrate God's design for us and live toward it. Let's care for the eyes of our hearts. Let's confess our sins to God and one another. Extend grace to one another, but also call one another to holiness. Let's cultivate that intimate relationship with God, with our spouses, and with the church family. May we live according to God's design in the 21st century. God has so much for us. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we praise you. We have sung to you today. We have prayed. We have listened to your word. And you, God, are faithful. We thank you. You're steadfast in your love. You are so gracious. You're slow to anger. You're merciful. And you are holy and just. And so we thank you that you have called us to yourself by your grace. And you've gifted us with life through Jesus, your Son. 
Thank you, Father and Son, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to abide in us. And Father, we recognize, we acknowledge that we are weak, that we are fragile, and that we need your help. Whether we are single or married, young or old, we need your help. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you work in us, that you correct us where we are in error, that our minds be renewed, Lord, by you, that we come to an understanding of your will that is so good, so acceptable, and so perfect. May we trust you to cleanse us, to restore us, to heal us, and to empower us to live in the way that you've called us to live. May we, Lord, as a church family, be that light on a hill, as the city on a hill that reflects your glory. Lord, for those of us who are struggling today, Lord, may we repent and turn Turn from those things that bind us or those things that are seducing us or tempting us and turn our eyes to you. May we entrust ourselves fully to you and trust you to do a work in our lives beyond anything that we can imagine. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.